Bible Biogs in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, one character at a time. Author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont is in conversation with David Taverner. In this episode, we're looking at the life of Solomon, a story you can read from 1 Kings chapter 1. And we want to start really, Mike, I think, by just checking his his parentage. So who were his parents? Well, his parents were the great King David and the woman that many will have heard of, Bathsheba, the woman that he fell into adultery with, but eventually made his wife. So this is his mum and dad, David and Bathsheba. Um, And David was king, King David. Um, How does it come about that Solomon becomes king? Just a natural succession? Well, yes and no is the answer to that. If we'd followed natural succession, it should have been some of David's earlier sons. But as we saw in an earlier episode, that David didn't handle his kids always very well. And so, you know, there were constant family troubles. So his eldest son was... Amnon, who raped his half-sister and who was killed by Absalom because of it. Absalom then has to flee and comes back eventually, gathers people, leads a civil war. So there's lots of these. And actually, the person who was left surviving after all these sons have killed one another off or being killed by Joab, David's military commander, we're left with Adonijah, who was David's fourth and eldest surviving son. So following the principles of the world in those days, um, that the eldest son would follow you as king, Adonijah assumes that he's the one who's going to take over. And so the story begins in 1 Kings uh, chapter 1 with Adonijah making his stake for the throne. Nothing unusual in that. The chapter starts with saying David was now very old. He's actually struggling even to keep warm in bed. So, you know, the poor guy is now quite old. And it was very common in the ancient world to have your new king appointed before the other one died. It was a way of ensuring succession and stability. And so they were often overlapping co- hmm. co-regencies, co they were called. Almost a little bit of a handover. A handover period. So Adonijah um, decides that because his dad is going like this, then it's it's time to make his claim. And so as David's getting older and weaker, uh, we're told in the chapter, he starts going around saying, I'm going to make myself king. And he gets a chariot and charioteers and has 50 men running in front of him. So he starts acting and playing the king, even gathering some of his friends for a party to celebrate being king. And it's only because word gets back to Bathsheba, through Nathan, and then on to David, that that didn't happen. So Solomon, who's David and Bathsheba's son, um, is, what, waiting in the wings? Or how, how does it come about then that, uh, that Solomon actually takes on the role? Yes, he's waiting in the wings. Some of this we don't know the answer to. What we discover at the beginning of chapter 1 is... Bathsheba going to King David and saying, my Lord, didn't you promise that Solomon would be king after you? So at some point, David has made this declaration. Remember, we've already seen stories in previous episodes of how it doesn't always go to the firstborn son. We've seen that with the patriarchs. And so 
Yes, slightly unusual, but if that's what the patriarch or the king determines, so be it. And so she goes to David and said, didn't you say that Solomon was going to succeed you? And he says, yes. And she said, so how is it then that Adonijah is is having this sort of coronation party Mm. round at his place? And so David takes action quickly and he says, call for Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet. And they come and they they take Solomon and in words that will become immortalized in a musical, Zadok the priest anointed Solomon king. And from that point on, the succession is secured. Of course, news gets back to the folk at Adonijah's party who suddenly realize they've got important appointments that they need to attend. Hmm. And Adonijah has to come begging his brother for forgiveness. So Solomon is now assured as king. He's the one that David felt God had chosen to succeed him as king. So that sort of little family row kind of did resolve itself. And through it, I'm sure Solomon learned things. And what kind of ruler did he did he become? Well, Solomon was a very mixed ruler. And it's almost like a game of two halves. The first half of the game, as it were, he's immensely successful. Solomon will extend Israel's borders to the greatest it had been and ever would be in history. So he's phenomenally successful politically and and militarily. So with that, of course, comes a growth in the economics. So the economy starts to flourish. He was a great promoter of Uh, wisdom literature and getting people to study. And it's listed that he was really interested in things like botany and all sorts of other things. So there's an intellectual flourishing as well as a political flourishing, an economic flourishing, this intellectual flourishing. He's really wise. So he he strengthens um, the nation by establishing uh, key cities around the place, fortified cities. Megiddo is is one of the well-known ones whose ruins you can still see. He strengthens sort of government infrastructure, we might put it. He appoints 12 governors to sort of handle affairs on his behalf in 12 administrative districts. Here's the interesting thing, though. The administrative districts didn't coincide with the tribal districts. So you can imagine... Mm. that that brought some pressures and this all and of course, some unhappiness. And this, of course, all followed his father's example as king. So he had a lot to beat, in a sense. He does have a lot to beat. And probably one of the ways perhaps he tries to beat it more than any other is in doing the one thing that David wasn't allowed to do, which is to build the temple. Now, David had wanted to build a temple, but God had sent a message through Nathan the prophet saying, no, you can't build a house for me. Actually, I'll build a house for you, a house of people, a house of kings, but your son Solomon will build it. And one of the things David had done is to make preparations for it. He thought, okay, God says I can't do it, but I can prepare for it. By the way, it's good to prepare for your successors, whether that's in business or in church life. So he prepares and he starts gathering material and He has these arrangements with people like Hiram of Tyre to ship uh, cedar logs down and so on. So he made a lot of preparation for Solomon, but it's Solomon himself who actually builds this fabulous temple. It takes seven years to build the temple. Interestingly enough, he then builds 
a palace which takes 13 years to build. <laughs> Longer on his own question home than... Of, uh, you know, did it look more fabulous? So here is this great temple in which the Ark of the Covenant is brought. God blesses it by when the Ark is brought in and Solomon does his prayer of beautiful prayer of dedication that we can read about. When, when he does that, God comes down and actually fills the temple with his presence, with that cloud that it symbolized his presence uh, as he guided his people. And there is this absolutely magnificent temple, golden cedar all over the place. So he builds this fabulous temple that will become so significant in Israel's history. One slight downside was he used foreign craftsmen to do it all. So guess what they did? They ended up bringing their foreign design with them. So actually the design of the temple ends up as a typical Phoenician temple, surprisingly. Right, right. But the whole army as it were of of, of specialists and experts that were required to for this uh, construction they were and what also was required of course was money and workers and guess who was going to provide that yep the people in fact this is where the negative side starts to come in he starts to require conscripted labor from among the israelite tribes Now, the last time Israel had had conscripted labor, it was called slavery, and it had been in Egypt. But each of the districts was required to send men to work on the temple for one month out of each year. So you were being required to pay for it financially through taxes. Solomon introduced taxes. There had been no taxes up to this point, only the tithes and the offerings to God. And so... He begins to impose taxes to pay for these uh, great projects. He he makes these requirements of people that they have to to give their service and their labour to build it. And so I think we can begin to see already some resentment is going to build up here. And, And then he did some other really stupid things. Well, actually, they were politically astute, spiritually stupid. Because Solomon realized that if he is going to become a great king of a great nation, he needs alliances, he needs allies, he needs uh, trade treaties with people. And one of the best ways of forging alliances in the ancient world was to have uh, a marriage with one of the princesses from the royal family. And so he starts to enter into marriage alliances with the princesses, hundreds of these princesses. Hundreds. Hundreds of them from other places. Uh, And then he has about twice as many concubines as well. So putting it bluntly, he was a man of some considerable sexual appetite, which will become something of his undoing later on, because as all these women come, that seems so sensible for forging alliances. What do these foreign princesses bring with them? Well, they bring their foreign gods. And perhaps we can understand it began as, oh, honey, could I just have a little corner for a little shrine for my little god here? But gradually, as we read the story, we see that they start to steal something of Solomon's heart. And the son of the man who'd been the man after God's heart suddenly starts to share his heart around. Now, I am sure 
he had perfectly good rational reasons for this. It's politically expedient. I just have to do this in order to be able to build these alliances. But when you think 700 wives and 300 other women in his harem, hmm. this is a big alliance, and these slowly nibble away at his heart. It's a thousand, you know, personal relationship. Um, so so why, why do we associate someone with the wisdom, and why didn't he <laughs> listen to his own advice? Ah, well, I think all of us know it's always easier to give advice to others than to listen to your advice to yourself, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. He does become known as a man of great wisdom. And there's that, that story of the Queen of Sheba coming to visit him. Why? Because his wisdom had become of international renown. There's the story of the two mums who come. They'd both had babies. One had died in the night. And so one mother, the one of the, the mother of the one that had died had taken the other in the night, taken it as her own, put her dead baby with hers. And then when they'd woken up the next morning, the woman had said, this is not my baby. You've got my baby. No, I'm not. This is my baby. And the case had ended up coming before King Solomon. And there's that story where King Solomon comes out with this incredible wisdom because no one can decide, how do we tell? No DNA testing in those days, of mm. course. So King Solomon says, here's my wisdom, here's my advice, get a sword, cut the baby in half and give a half to each of them. And of course, then the real mum says, no! Mm. Comes forward, as it were, yeah. And Solomon says, give it to that woman. And there's just one little example, but there's references as well to his wisdom in a whole host. And this period we know was a time of great flourishing of wisdom and interest. Many of the Proverbs were written at this time. Now, not all the Proverbs were written by Solomon, but many of them were, and it's often itemised which are in our Bibles. So a man of great wisdom, but in some ways it was a little bit postmodern because postmodern people are well able to live in boxes and this box doesn't relate to this box and what I think here doesn't relate to what I think there. And I think Solomon was almost a bit like that. He has this incredible wisdom in general terms, for others, for his nation, but cannot look at his own life and see the stupidity of having so many relationships and what that will lead to, in particular this, this stealing of his heart through starting to turn to other gods as well as the living God. An imperceptible um, decline, do you see, in his life? Yes, I think it is. You know, I often think nobody wakes up one morning and says, you know what, I'm going to turn away from God today. I've never come across that. What happens more usually is that people give way a little bit of their heart. They yield ground on something, something that they once thought was important. They, they now explain away or say, well, it's not really that important. And things have a way of creeping up on us. So if ever in our own lives we get to a point of saying, oh, yeah, I used to think that, but I'm not sure. I'd just say, stop, just stop and ask yourself honestly why. So I think this thing had crept up on Solomon's life. And clearly with so many wives, he's facing also a lot of emotional pressure from them as well. And, you know, honey, if you do love me, come on, you could let me have this little guard. You know, I'll close the cupboard door so you don't have to see it. And little by little... His heart is stolen 
away. And there's a danger that if we're not careful, we can want to please everybody. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's what he ends up doing. He wants to please all his wives with all their gods. But of course, it's the cost of displeasing the living God. And while things go well in his own reign, the fruit of all that he has done will really be seen in the life of the son who follows him. Because can we begin to get a sense of the scale of what Solomon was was responsible for in terms of the impact um, internationally and the degree of wealth, uh, etc.? Yes. I mean, he's, he's clearly, as I said earlier, he extends Israel to its greatest borders it's ever been. He starts to engage in international trade. He has a fleet of ships based down on what we would now call the Gulf of Aqaba. And it seems these ships may have sailed as far as India, bringing back exotic products. So you're looking at a man here who politically, economically, strategically is extends Israel to to the highest it, it has ever been. So there are huge responsibilities here. Hence his dividing up of the nation into those regions with people to look after it for him. Uh, that building of the temple, it's not just a building, this is a responsibility. This is the house of God on earth. The ark was seen as the place where heaven met earth. And it was now here in the house that Solomon had built and, and, and God had blessed that house. So this guy had really everything going for him, considerable responsibilities. And the whole reason the Queen of Sheba comes to him is because of that international uh, reputation. I was going to ask you about that because, yes, you said that um, she, she came I mean, at his invitation or did she want to come or how did that royal visit, this is the Queen coming to see the King. <laughs> so what's that all about? Well, 1 Kings 10 starts with these words, when the Queen of Sheba heard of Solomon's fame, which brought honour to the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. So it looks like it's a reputational thing. Clearly, his reputation has gone far and wide. And so she makes this journey and she arrives with all her attendants and it says a great caravan of camels loaded with spices and gold and everything. And she meets with Solomon. Remember what she come for? To test him with hard questions. And the text says Solomon had answers for all her questions, nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. So this was clearly an incredibly wise man. And why he could be wise at one level and so stupid at another personal level, beggars belief, really. But but when the queen, it says, realized how wise he was, when she saw the palace he'd built, she was overwhelmed. So she's overwhelmed with what she sees. It says she's overwhelmed at the food on his table, the organization of his officials, their clothing, the cupbearers. In other words, everything about this is excellent. And she ends up saying to him, you know, everything I heard about you is true. I, I didn't believe it until I came and saw it. Might she have been a bit myself. threatened? Might she have been a bit threatened by the way in which he was um, <laughs> building his kingdom? Absolutely. Remember I said he developed a, a fleet of trading ships uh, that was Ezion Gebir, down at the southernmost point of Israel. Um, much of her wealth came from trading. And underneath all the political razzmatazz and the handshaking that we are used to these days, 
there was an underlying political and economic sense as well. She was really worried that if this guy developed his trading fleet too much, it would certainly affect their economy because Sheba had got quite an economy in that area of trade and fleets of ships themselves. So when she lavishes him with, it says, 9,000 pounds of gold and great quantities of spices and precious jewels, um, she's not doing it for nothing. You know, she's really hoping to keep this king on side. Yeah, so it wasn't just a... Of his developing influence. So it wasn't just a state visit for the sake of the cameras. There was something going on underneath as well. Yeah, like most state visits behind the cameras, you know, there's always the economists doing all the talking and the politicians behind, aren't they? And that was very much happening there. But it's an excellent insight into how very much the kingdom of Israel was expanding at this time. Again, it was at its greatest it would ever be economically, politically, socially. This was an incredible time and it would all pretty much be thrown away because of his lack of wisdom in due course. When Solomon eventually died, his kingdom passed to his son, a guy called Rehoboam. And at that point, the leaders of the northern tribes, remember it was on them that the burden had fallen. They'd had to end up giving more in terms of manpower and taxes than the southern tribes had, who'd frankly been favoured. So representatives of the north come and they say to Rehoboam, this is 1 Kings chapter 12, listen, your majesty, we're really pleased to have you ruling as king, but, you know, we really would like to ask you, your father was a bit of a hard taskmaster. He, he put incredible burdens on us. Yes, we see the splendor that came, but you know, those, those demands of labor and taxes, those were the two points they brought. The compulsory labor and the taxes were heavy. And your majesty, if you could find a way to easing those, then it says, we will be your loyal subjects. So they're appealing for some relief. And King Rehoboam, Solomon's son says, well, give me three days and come back and I'll give you your answer. So he does something very wise. He goes to the elders of Israel and said, um, what do you think? How would you have me serve them? And they have an interesting answer. They say, if you are willing to be a servant to these people, then our advice is hear what they're saying. Did you hear that? If you are willing to be a servant, you know, doesn't matter how high we might get up the ladder, as it were. No matter what role we might hold in business or in the world or in the church, we never get higher than being a servant. If you be a servant, if you'll have a servant heart, then you'd be wise to hear what they're asking for. But then he goes to all his young mates who he's grown up with and he says, so lads, how would you advise me uh, to answer these people about all these burdens and what they say to him? Here's how you answer. Just say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. <laughs> In other words, you haven't seen anything yet. Mm. You thought you were getting burdened by him. I'll show you. And foolishly, he listens to the advice of his young mates mm. rather than the wise counsel. And the, the wise and the wise counsel, if I've heard you correct, were basically saying, strive to be a servant. Strive to be a servant, but also give them some tangible relief 
from this these heavy taxes your father imposed on them to build the temple and to build the palace and to have the look we're established now you know we can ease off and you can certainly ease off the compulsory that's really what they were asking free release from the taxes release from the compulsory service so when they come back he, he says that to them my, my father's finger uh, my finger is thicker than my father's waist and they all turn around and say right then we don't want you and those 10 northern tribes break away and at this point the kingdom that has been built up that david works so hard that solomon works so hard to build up suddenly splits into two never ever to come back never together ever. again and those 10 northern tribes will break away they'll appoint a leader for themselves not a descendant of david a man called jeroboam jeroboam had been one of solomon's uh commanders one of his leaders but he crossed swords with solomon metaphorically speaking at some point and had to flee to egypt and they called him from egypt and said you become our king <laughs> and so this breakaway kingdom that from this point on will be known as Israel, while the south will be known as Judah. The north has no Davidic king ruled by Jeroboam. The south ruled by Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And these two will now become two separate kingdoms. And in the unfolding story in one and two kings, the author will flip between the two. So whenever you're reading in Kings, if it talks about Israel, it means the breakaway part. In the Judah means those true descendants of David. Where did all that come from? The guy we're talking about, Solomon. The guy who was so wise and yet who was so stupid at the same time. And it was because he'd imposed these huge burdens on the north that they eventually broke away. And the great kingdom that he had worked so hard to build disintegrated at his death. Nobody could have imagined that would have been his legacy bearing in mind how successful his kingdom had been. Not at all. And in fact, still today, when most people think about King Solomon, when most Christians think about King Solomon, they'll immediately think, of, oh, yes, the temple he built. And of course, the temple was hugely significant in the history of Israel. And it would stay standing there till 586 BC when Babylon came and destroyed it and carried away its artifacts. But actually, in many ways, the more long-lasting impact from his reign was not all those good things. It was the result of the bad thing, the, this breakup of the kingdom, so that God's own people would break into two. And these 10 northern tribes, as we'll see in future episodes, would eventually end up so drifting away from the living God, so turning to idolatry and Baal worship, that God will send mighty Assyria to invade them, conquer them, and scatter them over the known earth of those days never to come back together again and in some ways that was solomon's more lasting legacy than some of the other stuff as you think about solomon's life and reflect on it do you do you admire him oh that is a tricky question because you know it it's like leaders today isn't it politicians today you look at them and like everyone else they're mixture just as solomon was you look and you see good stuff that you admire and you think that was a really good thing that you did. And building the temple was great and developing his nation was great, but there were also stupid things. 
And I use that word, I don't like using stupid a lot, but it really was stupid, some of the stuff that he did for such a wise man. So I don't think I can say yes, and I don't think I can say no. It's a yes and no. So much to admire, but so much of what he did that we admire led to the very undermining of what it is that he gave in the history of Israel. We ask for wisdom so often to make decisions in life. What can we learn about where to find wisdom? Well, Solomon answers that in many ways in his book of wisdom, in the book of Proverbs. And so many of the Proverbs say in somewhere or other, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, by fear, it doesn't mean being frightened of him a healthy respect, remembering who God is, putting him at the center of your life, your thinking, your planning. That's the start of real wisdom. And one of the things that Solomon has left, it is many of those proverbs that remind us that if we truly want to be wise, and remember, wisdom isn't the same as intellect. You can be a very, very clever person and have no wisdom at all. Or you can be very uneducated and have huge wisdom, because wisdom is about getting the fear of the Lord, having God at the center of our life, having respect for him, his word, what he says in his word, living by that and saying, God, if you will help me, I will live in the way that you show me in your word. That's where true wisdom begins. And unfortunately, Solomon was good at teaching it, but not at living it. David Tavener was in conversation with Mike Beaumont, who's written about the people of the Bible throughout the Christian Basics Bible. Catch their conversations anytime on the UCB Player or with your favorite podcast provider. Just search for Bible Biogs in 30 minutes.